spoken and only truth received. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, Samantha Peters sent me the text of a reflection that she had preached as part of a Lenten series at Canadian Mennonite University. The theme she'd been given was darkness in community. She decided to speak about Gord Johnson's song, Into the Darkness, with which we end most of our liturgies during the season of Lent. Samantha wrote of how she'd felt what she called a surge of resistance the first time she heard that song. Surely, she wrote, a church service should move from darkness to light, not the other way around. Surely we should be sent out with a promise of hope, not an assertion that the light is gone. At the very least, surely we're expected to carry a candle into the darkness, but no, gone, gone is the light. It's a question that others have raised over the years. What does it mean to be sent from a communion liturgy with such words? Well, the arrival of Samantha's peace was for me a confirmation of something I've been thinking about over the season of Lent, namely that I would build my Good Friday sermon around that very song. I am in no way intending to qualify or correct or improve on Samantha's insights. Her piece stands alone. You can read it and listen to it on the website. But she did set a kind of a standard. So what I will do today is akin to what jazz musicians do. They take one of the standards, then they begin to improvise, to explore and stretch and see where it goes. Never to erase or override the standard song, mind you. So an improvisational and personal exploration that owes a debt both to Gord's song and to Samantha's reflection. Into the darkness we must go, gone, gone is the light. I've always heard that as referring to the movement into the darkness of Gethsemane, following that last meal that Jesus had shared with his disciples. After that meal, they had sung the hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Now that meal, that meal would have been filled with life and light, marked by rich tastes and rich smells, shared in a safe and warm place. In John's telling, it's in that space that Jesus gets down and washes his disciples' feet and then names them as his friends. But there were those strange words spoken there as well about a broken body and spilled blood. The presence of Judas, too. His plan already well underway. For Jesus, at least, that must have added a real tension, a real sorrow to that meal. Now it's time to sing together, my brothers, my friends.
and then out into the darkness of Gethsemane, literally dark in that garden, where even the light of the moon would get lost in the branches of the trees, figuratively dark, marked by those agonizing words. Jesus said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It just doesn't get a whole lot darker than that. A whole lot more heartrending than that. Now, as many of you will know, I spent five weeks this past winter on an intensive retreat at the University of King's College in Halifax. My spiritual guide and mentor over those weeks was the chaplain, Father Gary Thorne. And he set up for me a demanding practice and discipline of solitude. Aside from the daily services I attended in the college chapel, morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer, and twice a week again at late night Compline. I was very much on my own aside from those times. 14, sometimes 16 waking hours each day in solitude. Journaling, directed readings, learning how to draw and then how to paint so I could attempt to complete a, an orthodox style icon of Christ and a whole lot of pacing the cage. In his outline for my weeks there, Father Thorne highlighted the need for me to get really bored. He said it will be difficult to find the boredom and inner chaos that can lead to divine restlessness. Spending unproductive time in your cell is important. When I first read that, I wasn't sure what he meant. The only writing I was to do was in my journal, no more than 45 minutes a day. No work was to be done on any new book or essay or chapter or anything else. That's way too familiar for me. I could get lost in hours and hours of writing like that. No, he said I was not to produce like that. In fact, when we talked a few weeks before my arrival there, he told me I was not to come intent on fixing or solving or answering or even healing anything. That was not to be my goal. And were I to set my mind and my heart like that, the five weeks would be wasted. I was simply to go and to be, to be in openness to God's mercy, full stop. Now, there were days that it was tough, really tough. There was a stretch of about three days in the middle of those weeks when I wondered if I could possibly make it through. All I could think about for those days was how many hours were left before I could just go back to bed and back to sleep. Into the darkness we must go. Gone, gone is the light.
And then came the morning, the fourth morning that week when something just shifted. I was out for an early morning walk. The sun was just coming up over the horizon. I looked up and I thought to myself, this is going to be a good day. I didn't know why. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. That's the second verse of Gord's song. It's drawn directly from the Passion story according to Luke. I felt that day as I walked the streets of Halifax at sunrise that I had been so remembered. Not that Jesus had been absent up to that point, but somehow that day, and then through the rest of my days there, I felt very much held in His presence. More, I realized I was being remembered, reintegrated, body, mind, and soul. The days could still feel very long, the work of solitude hard, but I was being remembered. There's one more verse in the song, again drawn from the Passion story according to Luke. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We can never lose sight of those words. Jesus speaks them, he prays them over his executioners and all those who had set his awful, torturous death into motion. Now there's a long and shameful history of Christians blaming the Jews, calling them the Christ killers, centuries of persecution, excluding condemning and even attempting to annihilate the Jewish people. They did it. But no. Jesus looks out over the soldiers and Pontius Pilate, the temple leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes and all the others who participated in this horror and he prays forgiveness. They don't begin to understand what they're doing, Father, Forgive them. Lord, let's say. Oh, mm -hmm.
Sometimes we don't either, not fully. We say things and we do things and we fail to do things. We rationalize and justify things, not ready to acknowledge the damage we're doing. And over those things too, Jesus speaks his prayer of forgiveness. From the cross, he speaks his grace over the brokenness of our lives. So there, pacing the cage of my solitude, I had to accept that deep forgiveness for all of the failings that had brought me there in the first place. And having accepted, I needed to then take the next step, the step of forgiving, and of forgiving at that depth at which things truly are released. There's a darkness in that kind of forgiveness as well. Because forgiving like that is hard. Yet then comes the moment when you realize that this darkness has come about because the light of grace has been so bright that it's temporarily blinded you. It's then you begin to be free. Well, at the end of my five weeks there, the last night at the college, Father Thorne arranged to have a dinner for me with the chapel community. And he wanted me to speak to them about what I'd seen and learned about their community, about what I'd come to know about them that they maybe didn't know about themselves. Well, that day, the city was hit with one of the worst snowstorms on recent record. I wondered how many of the students would be able to attend this meal 
A number did live right on campus, but the majority lived in apartments and houses around the neighborhood. The streets were all closed down, the sidewalks three and four feet in wet maritime snow. Even the chapel steps themselves were buried. But somehow, over 30 of them managed to get there. Together, we, we feasted against the cold and dark of that storm. When it came time for me to speak, I, I realized I needed to say something about what had brought me there. As all the students knew was that I was a priest from Winnipeg who'd come to spend those weeks on a contemplative retreat. I didn't go into any real detail. But I just said that I was coming off of a very, very tough year. A year marked by deep sorrow, loss, and grief. And that at the very toughest point of that year, Father Thorne had reached out to me in friendship. Seven months later, after he first reached out, that friendship had landed me there in their midst in a posture of openness to God's grace and mercy. And then having said just that, I, I spoke about the hospitality I'd received in their chapel. This stranger who just kept coming to liturgy after liturgy, day after day. At noon prayers there might have been just three or four of us. At the weekly choral evensong or university Eucharist, there could be as many as 80 or 90. But regardless, there was always a space for me in the pews. Always a greeting, a smile, a little bit of encouragement for me in my retreat. That's what I had experienced, and I told them I'd watched as other strangers and visitors had come in and been offered the same sort of gentle welcome. When I finished speaking, Father Thorne stood up and he said, Jamie, you came to us with a broken heart. This is a community that always has room for the brokenhearted. Because every year in Holy Week, we walk with the brokenhearted Jesus. And we know of his mother's broken heart as well. A sword shall pierce your own soul also. Every year in Holy Week, we walk with the broken heart of Jesus. That's why at St. Benedict's Tables, we insist on singing those stark, even unsettling words, into the darkness we must go, gone, gone is the light. Those words that Samantha said had evoked in her a surge of resistance, yet are still so very true. We must go into the darkness over the days of Lent and Holy Week, and particularly here today, because Jesus did. And because Jesus did, even that darkness is itself forever changed. We know how the story will turn out. But for today, we just won't go there. 
This space will remain stripped of its usual hangings and liturgical colors. There's no flowers, there's no candles, there's no bells rung. There's that one prayer near the beginning of the liturgy that acknowledges we do know the fullness of the story. A prayer that admits that even as we bear witness to the darkness of the passion, we know it isn't merely a dark death. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls, now and in the hour of our death. That prayer goes on to ask for mercy and grace for the living, for forgiveness to us sinners and everlasting life and glory. We know that there is light beyond the darkness of the Passion Liturgy, but we won't touch it yet, not yet. We need to meditate on the broken heart of Jesus, on the broken heart of his mother and of the disciples who were in hiding of Mary Magdalene and the other women who dared to go to Golgotha. We need to do that, and to do it year after year after year. If we walk with all of those broken hearts in Holy Week, then we will be the sort of community where there's always room for the brokenhearted, for the last and the least and the lost and the little. And maybe this year, maybe today, that's you. One more story. By the time that chapel community dinner and all of the conversations were finished, the Halifax snowstorm had largely died down. It was soon going to be time to go to sing Compline together that late evening liturgy. And so I, I dropped a few things off at my room. I was leaving the next day, so I packed up a few of my things, and then I made my way back across the, the college yard, the quad, toward the chapel. The wind was still blowing. The snow was deep and wet, but the worst of the storm was indeed over. As I walked, a student came up to walk beside me, his parka hood up and tied tightly around his face. Well, Jamie, he said, looks like we're going to sing Compline outside under the tree. Well, I said, maybe you're going to sing Compline outside under the tree. I'm going to sing it inside with the rest of the community. I opened the chapel door to see Father Thorne bundled with his jacket under his cassock. We're praying outside tonight, my brother, he said. And soon about 20 of us were processing out of the door with candles in our hands, candles that stayed lit for all of about three seconds. We got out into the yard close to the tree where the snow had blown a kind of an even space. We broke into two sides so that we could chant this liturgy back and forth to each other. And the whole time as we're doing that, I'm thinking, oh, Gary, you're just having us do this because you can. You're creating a memory here of how we prayed out after the snowstorm. And I shivered 
wishing I put on an extra layer or two because even though it was only four, maybe five degrees below zero, there was that real maritime damp in the air. Two-thirds of the way through the Compline Liturgy, we came to the prayers and confession. The young woman who was leading us intoned, let us pray, and everyone dropped to their knees in the snow, wet snow, that immediately soaked through the knees of your pants with that icy cold. And we began to chant, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. And we chanted the Lord's Prayer, followed by a, a set of responses. We spoke a prayer of confession together and received absolution. It was followed by another set of responses. And then the young woman who was leading the intercessions, the, the prayers of the people, called us into prayer. She began, This night we pray especially for those in our city who have no shelter, no place to call home. That's why you're having us do this, Gary. That's the reason we're out here in the pole. There's a prayer sometimes said before meals. It says, make us ever mindful of the needs of others. I tell you, there's no way to be more mindful of the needs of people who that night would sleep in bus shelters or under bridges than to feel it in the cold damp of your knees. That's why we needed to sing that liturgy out in the cold darkness, so that we'd not forget, not take our own warm spaces for granted, not fail to walk with a deep mindfulness that the homeless and the brokenhearted are also our brothers and our sisters. Into the darkness we must go, gone, Gone is the light. For this day, that's as much as we need say. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.